Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You so much for this weather. Father, we thank You for the beautiful weekend. We thank You for the work You're doing in our humble community, God. We thank You for Your presence here with us today. We ask, Lord, that You may open up Your Word, that You may teach us, God. You may enliven our hearts and draw us closer unto You in love and in community. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, today is Trinity Sunday in the liturgical calendar that follows after Ascension and after Pentecost. The liturgical calendar is basically the way that we live out um, the life of Jesus. It's something that I did not grow up in. I grew up in a Baptist church, so I was used to 40-minute sermons, which maybe might happen today since there's no Eucharist. We'll see. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. There will be no 40-minute sermon. Monica convinced me on the way over. But um, rather, I do feel like I have learned a lot from the liturgical calendar. Um, it begins in Advent, which is the, celebrating the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. It goes through Advent, celebrates the baptism of Jesus, and it brings us into Lent, which is where we remember Christ's time in the wilderness and um, where we kind of take a more penitential uh, reflection into our own life and examining ourselves. And that takes us into Good Friday, celebrating the death of Jesus, Easter, the resurrection, a few days later, 50 days later, I should say, the Ascension and Pentecost. So it makes sense Trinity Sunday follows after uh, the Spirit comes on, on Pentecost. However, Trinity Sunday is often a Sunday that is skipped over in the preaching. Um, I don't know if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many hands I would see if you have heard um, preachings on the Trinity. One of the reasons is simply because there is no single text in the Bible that points us to the Trinity. There are lots of different texts that points us in that direction, which I'm hoping to go over today. Um, but what happens when we ignore something like the Trinity, which is a basic tenet, a basic understanding of Christianity, one of the unique understandings of Christianity as well, is that this leads to ignorance, and ignorance leads to preaching on television, if you did not know. Um, but that's usually the order in which it goes. Now. What I will be doing today, beyond training you all for your future televangelistic ministries, um, and if you're not quite sure what I'm talking about, just Google uh, nine-person trinity. You'll, you'll, you'll be thankfully, uh, not impressed, I don't know what the word is, but you'll be thankful that you did not go in that direction. So again, what we're hoping to do today is examine the trinity, um, where it came from, and what its implications are. Now, the reason why I think this is important, and... Um, if you were sitting in a coffee shop I, like I was on Thursday and you were asking one another, maybe this is a friend who's not a Christian, maybe someone who is a Christian, maybe you're having a drink now that it's warm out, drinking outside um, on the patio perhaps, you might fall into conversation and you might say, well, do you believe in God? And now if I'm asking that question to someone, for me I'm asking, do you believe in God, the Father, or maybe the Trinity? But they might hear it as I think one or two ways. I've been in the city for about three years almost now, and I feel like these are one or two ways most people in the city might hear this question asked, do you believe in God? Option one is kind of the grandfather Zeus-esque God, man with a large beard, he kind of hangs back, and he created the world. Most people will say, yeah, we're not quite sure how the Big Bang happened. Okay, maybe God started the Big Bang, but he hasn't really interacted with the world since then. So that's option A, and I would actually contend to say that most people when they say, who is this God, they think this God. And so they either believe in him, 
but have no real reason to interact with him, because this is the God you believe in, why would you need to interact with him at all? He doesn't interact with you. There's no real reason for interaction. Or you see him as this God, and you say, you know, the problem of evil. Here's all this pain and this suffering. Why are you not interacting with the world? Okay, that's option A. Option B, which I think is also a viable option in our city and in many cities across the country, is they say, do you believe in God? And they would say, of course I believe in God. God is everywhere. God is in me. God is in you. God is all around us. And so, again, their, their view of God is slightly different than the Christian view. Well, more than slightly. Their view of God is different than the Christian view in that they're seeing God all over the earth. And so if, if they are to believe in God, then their goal in life is to try and find the God that's inside themselves. So they're trying to reach deeper and deeper and deeper into the goodness that exists to find the God that is inside of them. Or if they say, you know what, that's silly, God's not everywhere, there is no God, they're probably saying, well, if God is everywhere, then where was God in the midst of that earthquake? Where was God in the midst of that natural disaster? So we see these two ideas that I, that I would challenge and bring to you are the two major um, theologies or understanding of God in our city today. So if you're in a conversation with somebody and you ask them, well, do you believe in God? A better question might be, which God do you believe in? Or you might say, do you believe in God? And what do you think I mean by that? And it'd be interesting to hear what some of these answers might be. I'm guessing they'd be in one of these two categories. But the Christian understanding of God is vastly different. If we believe in a personal God, we believe in a relational God, we believe in a God that is three in one. Um, And obviously this has posed some troubles and this has posed an, an enormous time spent trying to produce an analogy that fits this. But at the end, there is some mystery that goes into it. But the, way, the understanding of God three in one, three persons of one substance, is something we do get from the Bible. And we'll examine first the one part, then the three part, and we'll see how it all fits together. The one is we see throughout the scriptures um, beginning in the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus, where God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty clear, right? One God, no other gods before me. We hear it again in the Shema, and Shema is the word for hear in Hebrew, the first word in this verse. Um, this is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was believed right up into the New Testament. There's no doubt at all that the Father, what we call the first person in the Trinity, is God. Um, Paul, for instance, was an Orthodox Jew, and there's beyond a shadow of a doubt that he believed in this Deuteronomical passage. He believed in this understanding that there is one God. But at the same time, we see that when Jesus comes onto the scene, there's a shift. There's, yes, there's a belief in one God, but there's also a belief in Jesus as God. Um, we see this in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul states that, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We also see this most clearly in Philippians, where Paul uh, writes that he talks about God, he talks about Jesus descending unto earth, and he says, Jesus, who is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So he's equating Jesus with this idea of the Father. And of course, the Holy Spirit as well, which we see in Acts, as Ananias and Sapphira, when they sin against the Holy Spirit, Paul, or I'm sorry, Luke, the writer of Acts, writes that they sinned against God. So even early on, in these early Christians, they're equating the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit equally as a Trinity. 
Okay, great. But how many of you, when you actually are interacting with God, who are you thinking about when you're interacting with God? When you say God, who do you think about? I think usually you think about the Father, that's one option, or sometimes we'll think about the Trinity, all three gods. But how many of us actually pray to the Trinity? Or how many of us actually interact with all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, together at once? Usually we kind of pick and choose which one we want to interact with at what time. So maybe we're charismatic and we're praying for the Lord to bless our time. Well, we're going to usually aim at the Holy Spirit. We'll aim at that one over there. Maybe we've been convicted of sin. We're probably going to aim at Jesus. Okay, and if we're thanking, usually we're going to aim at the Father, right? This is kind of how we operate. We, we necessarily haven't been taught these things from the pulpit. We haven't really been taught these things in Sunday school. We've kind of just ended up doing this because this is what we've heard other people pray, and this is heard um, what we've heard our parents maybe have taught us. And again, not to condemn anyone. These aren't bad things. These are just the way things have been handed down to us. And I do want to confess on behalf of the church that the church hasn't always been the most clear in explaining the Trinity. Um, two models that are often used are, the first is H2O. Uh, I don't know if you all know this model. If you do, I'll repeat it for you. But when I was actually in high school, I took a world religions course. And uh, it was two semesters. First semester was world religions of the East. Second semester was world religions of the West. And in world religions of the West, the, the professor, the teacher was saying, well, now we're going to come to Christianity. And I'm like, okay, I grew up in the church. I can, this is my time to shine. I can do this. And he said, is that, he said, now the Trinity is a great mystery. No one can explain the Trinity. I raised my hand real fast. I was like, well, you can't explain the Trinity because you're not a Christian. That's what I'm thinking in my head foolishly. Later I find out he is a Christian. But of course, these are my foolish thoughts. And I say, no, the Trinity is like H2O because the Spirit's like steam. Jesus is like water. And God is like ice. Now, in some ways, this analogy actually does work because it's one essence, it's one substance in three different forms. So it's not that that uh, analogy isn't pulled out of the air. There is some substance to it. However, it can start, uh, it can force us to think in what's called modalism, or we think about different modes. So we think about one God. There's, this is um, something that was disputed early on. One God, and he wears different masks at different times. So maybe he's wearing the Holy Spirit mask at one point, and he's wearing the Jesus mask at another point, and he's wearing the Father mask at another point. So one God, but acting in three different ways. And that is not the idea in Christianity. The idea is that there is one God in three distinct persons. They've all existed from eternity, and they all will continue to exist. One substance, three different persons. Another one which breaks down even worse is the egg illustration. Has anyone heard of this one? Okay, the egg illustration is that you have the shell, which is one part of God, the white part. What is the white part called, anybody? The white, okay. <laughs> then the yellow part, which is called the yolk. All right. So now you have all these three parts, but if you really look at it chemically, they're actually made up of three different uh, things. There's three different chemical attributes to them. So that analogy breaks down even further. And of course, this is a mystery. So any attempt to place God into analogy is to some degree foolish. But I think one thing that I um, thought so interesting was in examining these analogies is that all these analogies look at what makes up the Trinity. They're all, they're all based about how they are 
um, what their very essence or substance is. Or a fancy word for that is, is ontology. What is their ontology? What is their essence and substance? None of these analogies talk about the relationships to one another. How the father is interacting with the son who's interacting with uh, the spirit and vice versa. Now you'll notice in your bulletin there is um, on the last page, I guess on the inside last page, there is a diagram there. The, di the same diagram that is in fact on my arm <laughs> minus the trees. Now I was thinking about getting an egg or a H2O symbol, but I think I chose the right one. Um, and the reason that it's of trees is I'm trying to invoke a, a living presence. Actually, I have this picture drawn up. That was drawn up for my tattoo. I went against that particular design. Uh, I think it was a good choice. But I think that does show that the, the Trinity is a living thing. It's not a thing. It's a living God. And it's interacting one with another. And I think it's important that we realize this because the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all emphatically personal. They do not reveal themselves to us in an imperson impersonal way. Tim Keller says, at the bottom of the universe, at the very basis of the universe, there's not some mysterious force that exists, some Jedi-like force. Rather, it is love. It is the Father who is eternally relating to the Son in love and eternally relating to the Spirit in love, and each are relating both to God and in love. And it is, God is, is personal. He's interpersonal, relational, He's giving, receiving, loving, and directing. And there is nothing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do that is not communal. And now this pushes back against our culture. Because what we want to do is we want to keep moving to something that's less and less personal. As we rise in our, whatever our career may be, whether it's teachers who arise and become principals, whether it's people who work in business who arise and become CEOs, what, whatever it may become, as we get up higher and higher in the ranks, we learn how to be more and more impersonal. We don't have time for human interaction. It's faster to send a text message. It's faster to send an email. It's faster to send a tweet. Okay? There are all these things that, are, that push further and further against the, the personality, that, the personal relationships that we've all been given as human beings. And so the Trinity, understanding the relationships and how they're deeply personal with one another, actually is prophetically speaking against the impersonality, the impersonalness of our culture. And so this Trinity reminds us that. So when we were baptized, for those of us who were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into a personal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is deeply personal, but it's also deeply participatory. There is nothing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit haven't done that they've done together. They've always done everything together. They've never done one thing alone. Now, often when we think about different parts of the creation narrative or the um, historical narrative, we think of creation, mostly we attribute to God the Father. We usually think of the cross to the Son and the Pentecost, we usually think of to the Spirit. Yet at each of these moments, each of these large moments in the history of the universe, the Trinity, all three were present. In creation, we have God who's present. We have the Spirit who's hovering over the water. And the early Christians, ancient Christians, wrote that as God spoke, it was the Logos. And John tells us in his first chapter that the Logos is Jesus, is the Word. And so even in, the, in the creation, we have all three are present and are part of that creation act. In the cross, we have the Father who sends the Son to earth. And it is the Father 
who, uh, who sees and condemns the Son and puts all our sin upon Him. And it's Jesus who takes that on and it's Jesus who is led to the cross by the Spirit. And so all three are equally present and interacting there. And then in Pentecost as well, it is the Father and the Son who send the Spirit to the earth to be with us as the church. So each of these acts and everything that we do, so as we pray, we pray to the Father by the grace of the Son through the Holy Spirit. As we're worshiping today, we are worshiping in the presence and with the grace of the Blessed Trinity, of all three together. And so it's a deeply participatory act. And again, this speaks prophetically against our culture because as we move up and up in the world, if you will, we see um, a delegation, if you will, to other things. Again, I mentioned this in the same way before, to email, to text messaging. There's a guy, he's a pastor now. He actually used to work for Porsche in advertising. Then he became a Mennonite pastor. I don't know how that works, but that was kind of his career path. Um, Now he's pastoring somewhere else. But he basically writes that when he was working for Porsche, he used to have to send all these different projects around to be working with a group here, a group here, and a group here, sometimes on different floors and in different buildings within the Porsche complex. And in the beginning, he would email, and he'd have to keep pestering, keep pestering. As his deadline came forward, he'd say, okay, did you finish this part? Did you finish this part to put it all together? He, what he started doing was that he would go and he would talk to the leader of each team. And he'd become their friend. He asked them how their kids were. He asked them what they were doing this weekend. He'd form a relationship with them, a participatory relationship with them. And he realized that while this took more time, that these people, these team leaders, would end up walking the projects over and handing them to him in person instead of sending them over email. He no longer had to hunt down for these people to help him with his project because he had formed a relationship with them. He knew them and they knew him. And so in the same way, this participatory, participatory nature of the Trinity speaks against our desire to just, oh, well, technology will take care of it. Oh, delegation will take care of it. The last part of the Trinity that we are to remember um, that I think we miss in some of these analogies is the mystery of the Trinity. The Trinity reminds us that, yes, we're human, and yes, we've done a lot with our humanity. We've come a long way. But at the same time, there's still something that is bigger than us. There's still a grander vision out there. There's still something that is larger than our minds can comprehend. And so the Trinity is like a light. It's a light that's foreign to us, but it's a light that draws us closer into the true reality. So as we pray to the Trinity, as we worship, as we interact, as we keep in mind that all that we do is with and through the Trinity, it's a mystery. Yet at the same time, it's drawing us closer and closer to Him in a mysterious way. Now, the way this, this interaction of the Trinity, I think, is um, most present is in, the, is in the actual creation narrative, something that was read for us today. Um, we have to remember that the whole world was created out of the overflow of the love. So we have the Father who is eternally and perfectly loving the Son and the Spirit. The Son who is eternally and perfectly loving the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is eternally and perfectly loving the Father and the Son. And out of this love, out of this perfect, holy, good, participatory, personal, mysterious love, the earth is born. And this is the same way in humanity that we see creation in new life. It is out of the love, the incomplete, the not always perfect love, but love nonetheless that is powerful and beautiful, 
of a, of a father and a mother. And when that love comes together, there is new life that is created. And so in the same way with us, each of us were loved and created out of that perfect and never-ending love of the Trinity. Now these are great words to hear on a Sunday when you're sitting in church, but what do these words mean when it's Monday morning and you're depressed and you're tired? What do these words mean when it's Friday night and you're at a party and there's people all around you and yet you feel more and more alone? What do these words mean in a city that is busy and a city that is transient? And I think this, this loving creativity of the Trinity is a model for us as a community. So here we are in Boston, a city that is known for its busyness, a city that is known that, if I may, it's type A personality, a city that is known for its transience. How are we to form a community when most of us in this room are scheduled to leave the city in one to three years? And yet all of us, because we are baptizing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are called to a personal, are called to an intimate relationship. So my challenge to us as a community is a challenge to us for the summer. Is that this summer we will grow together in a way in which we can know one another and be fully known. And yes, that takes time. Yes, that takes risk. Yes, that takes um, a desire to let your guard down and fear that has to be overcome. But this is the community that we are baptized into. This is the community that we are called to be. And so our hope for the summer is that we can come together over dinner. We can come together for picnics, for barbecues. And these will not just be times for fun and mission. And yes, we are a missional church. And yes, I'm sure you've heard that word so many times you can't even count. But our desire in our missionality is to not forget that we're also called to be a community. Our, if, if, if we were to have a slogan, we would be a missional family. And sometimes we forget that we're a family. And that means caring and loving for one another. So today, I hope that as we ponder the Trinity, as we sing about the Trinity, as we pray to the Trinity, that we will remember that we are created out of its perfect and never-ending love. And that we are created to love we were created to receive love from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to receive love from one another and to give love to one another. So that's my prayer for us this summer, that we will grow deeper and deeper into the love of the Trinity. Amen.